Welcome to The Roundup, a North Queensland-based medical podcast offering local content for local clinicians. I'm your host, Alyssa Hathaway. I'm a local GP and family planning clinician and head of James Cook University's clinical school here in Mackay on Yui Country. This collaborative podcasting project between Mackay Hospital and Health Service, local clinicians and JCU will bring you a different topic and guest in each episode. Before we begin, I'd like to respectfully acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people of this nation, their contribution to healthcare and the traditional owners of the lands on which we practice. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr Jasmine Davis, a GP in Mackay who also works in the sexual health clinic here in Mackay. Jasmine is particularly interested in improving access to women in regional and remote areas for women's health concerns, particularly for medical termination of pregnancy or MTOP. Welcome, Jasmine. Thanks, Alyssa. Thanks for having me. What is it that we as clinicians in the community really need to know about unplanned pregnancy options to best help our patients when they come and see us? Well, yeah, I think you're right. I think we need to focus on what's important for the patient. So when someone presents with an unplanned pregnancy, we need to have the skills and knowledge to be able to counsel the patient um, as to what their options are um, and then to be able to refer and guide them to the most appropriate option for them. You know, sometimes people find it as a quite a difficult situation to be in, quite an emotional decision to be making. So I think we need to do our best to support our patients um, and help them through the process. Oh, I think that's great advice. And I would know... Um, from my experience, it's not unusual for a woman or a, a couple to come in with an unplanned pregnancy who have, until that moment, had really fixed ideas about how to manage an unplanned pregnancy. But once they've experienced their own unplanned pregnancy, those previous beliefs or um, particular persuasions kind of go out the window. People start to look at other options as maybe the right option for them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think um, until you're in the reality of a situation where there could be a new baby in your life, um, bringing a child into the world is a pretty big decision. Um, and, you know, when it's a hypothetical situation, it's, it's easy to say, oh, I would never do this or I would always do that. But when the reality comes in, then I think um, people often need to think a bit harder about what their decision is, whether that be continuing with the pregnancy um, or going ahead with the termination. Okay, so medical termination of pregnancy, we haven't been doing it in Australia all that long, but it's a really important mm -hmm. option for women, particularly in rural, regional and remote Australia, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think particularly um, for the women in our area in Mackay, it's quite difficult to access a surgical termination of pregnancy. Um, unless someone's got private health cover, um, and a bit of money um, to pay excess in gap fees um, or to pay for flights down to Brisbane since the closure of the regional surgical termination clinics. Um, so in understanding that, then we've got to know, you know, there are people that can't travel um, or don't want to travel away from their home to access surgical termination. So then we've got the option of, doing a medical termination where they can undertake that in their own home. Um, and, you know, they're probably out of action for about a day. 
um, but then can continue to work and provide care for other children if that's what they need to do. So in terms of medical termination of pregnancy, how do we walk our patients through those options? Yeah, so I think um, the first thing to figure out is um, the gestation of the pregnancy um, because depending on gestation, um, under the PBS, we can only prescribe the medical the medical termination up till nine weeks and zero days, um, whereas the surgical termination can be done for any reason up till 22 weeks. Obviously, as the gestation increases, the costs increase um, and also does the medical risk to the patient. Um, so, you know, if they can get it done within that first trimester, that's ideal, but sometimes we've got patients that are finding out or um, have a change of circumstances at a later date. When I'm helping someone to make that decision, first I'm looking at what's their past medical history and do they have any contraindications to a medical termination of pregnancy, like a bleeding disorder or being on anticoagulants, um, any chronic adrenal failure or a dependence on oral corticosteroids um, for another medical problem, because that would immediately make me lean towards the surgical option. Um, other times we've got to have caution with the medical termination is any conditions where excessive bleeding would be a problem for the person, so a cardiac condition, anyone with anemia or a severe kidney or liver disease. Other than that, it would be mostly talking to the person about, you know, what are their preferences? Would they prefer to go to the clinic, have an anaesthetic and wake up and have it all be finished? Or would they prefer to be able to be in the comfort of their own home and go through that cramping and bleeding process, you know, with their support people nearby rather than having to travel, um, you know, get on a plane, take time off work, potentially be away from the other kids. And then, of course, the cost. So the cost of a surgical termination certainly do outweigh the medical termination. Right. So what would be the expected process then for our patients when they're coming to see you to commence a medical termination of pregnancy? Yeah, so it, it really depends on whether they've seen their regular doctor and had some initial investigations done. You know, ideally someone could see their usual doctor, um, have an ultrasound to confirm the pregnancy is intrauterine and, and to get the dating of that pregnancy. Um, and Ideally, I'd want to see a blood test, hemoglobin, and a beta HCG for a baseline reading for them, um, and sexually transmitted infection testing if they need that. At that stage, then people will send a referral to one of the private providers in Mackay. You know, we've got quite a few GPs who are now providing medical termination of pregnancy, and then for our financially or socially disadvantaged people, there is a service at the sexual health clinic. When they come for that appointment, we would check through their investigations um, and their past history and make sure it is appropriate to proceed with the medical termination. Of course, we'd be checking that they do have the capacity to consent um, and that they're making the decision of their own free will um, with no coercion from, you know, maybe a partner or anyone else. And then going through with the patient, what to expect and what can go wrong um, and going through the consent process, just like any other medical procedure. Really, all patients need to know is that they need that quantitative beta-HCG and a haemoglobin 
and that ultrasound to confirm that the pregnancy is intrauterine when they come for that initial consultation. Absolutely. Um, we also need to start that conversation about future contraception just so that the person has the opportunity to have a think around what they want to do after the termination, um, particularly encouraging the long-acting reversible contraceptives, but um, giving the person all their options um, so that they can think about it and we can get that happening um, straight after the termination. Great. Okay, so for women who are pregnant, often we'll do um, a blood group and antibody screen. We're not really doing that for the women who are looking for a medical termination these days, are we? So um, certainly knowing if a patient is rhesus negative is really important if they are going to have a surgical termination. So if they were undecided, I would order that. But if we knew they were going ahead with a medical termination of pregnancy, if it is within that time, we can prescribe up till nine weeks. There's no requirement now for the anti-D injection. Okay, so it's pretty straightforward then for women who do find themselves needing a medical termination of pregnancy. You have mentioned some of the risks around severe kidney and liver disease and adrenal insufficiency. What are some of the other things that we need to be mindful of with our patients? Well, look, I usually like to make sure that someone with, lives within an hour or so of a hospital where they can provide emergency support um, just in the case of excessive bleeding. Um, I like someone to have a support person available um, so that if things do go wrong, that they have transport to get to a hospital. Um, you know, in, in terms of the major risks, the risks are that we could have excessive heavy bleeding. Um, now, that is uncommon, but that does happen. So I ask the woman to monitor her bleeding, monitor her blood loss, and if she does find it excessive, so soaking, saturating through more than two pads in an hour, um, then she should be monitoring that closely. And if she's experiencing dizziness, lightheadedness or fainting, um, then seeking out emergency medical attention. In terms of other complications, you know, we do have the odd occasion where it's not, it doesn't work. So um, a continued pregnancy. Um, and in that situation, we certainly would recommend that they continue the process. Um, either through a repeat of the medical termination or by going through a surgical procedure, um, mainly because the mysoprostol is teratogenic. Um, so, you know, it's not ideal for someone to change their mind and continue the pregnancy. Um, and if they were to choose that, then they would need to um, have some tertiary scans for monitoring of the baby. Right. So, sorry, you mentioned the misoprostol. Can you just talk us through the medication that we give to the patients and the timing of that? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, the medication that we use is called MS2 Step, and it's a packet including mifepristone, um, which is 200 milligrams, and misoprostol, which is um, 800 micrograms. So, how I usually work it is I ask the woman what day it would be um, to, to be most convenient for them to have that bleeding day when they're probably going to be stuck at home with a support person um, with a hot water bottle and pads. Um, so, you know, if that, if that falls on the, they would prefer that to fall on the weekend, then we can work backwards um, to figure out what day to take the mifepristone. The mifepristone has to be dosed 36 to 48 hours before the mice possible, 
Um, so I work that out for the patient and give some written information as to how to take the medication. Mifepristone is taken orally um, and the misoprostol is taken um, in the cheek where it's absorbed so that if they do have any nausea or anything following, um, that medication is already absorbed into their system. Um, it's really important that we make sure that the person has some adequate pain relief um, and antiemetics available, um, again, so that they can manage their own symptoms at home and avoid ending up in the hospital unless it's absolutely necessary. Okay, so the complications of the procedure then, you've talked about the excessive bleeding and the nausea um, and the heat mm -hmm. pack would then be for the significant pelvic cramping. What are some of the other complications we might expect and how are we best managing those? Yeah, so probably the most common complication would be um, retained products. Similar to after a miscarriage, um, there can be some membranes or products left behind. And, and what a person might experience is prolonged ongoing bleeding. I would usually expect the bleeding to last about two weeks. Um, but if it was lasting longer, say three, four weeks, or got suddenly heavier after it was getting lighter, then I'd be wanting to investigate, um, usually with an ultrasound um, and involving our gynecology colleagues at that point um, for management of ongoing retained products. I suppose from a medical perspective, managing retained products after termination is very similar to after a miscarriage. So I would expect that, you know, the majority of GPs would be well within their comfort zone of, of being able to manage complications like that. The other complication, again, similar to, um, to after a miscarriage, is that they can get an infection, so endometritis. Um, so we ask them not to use anything inside the vagina, so no sex or tampons, vaginal, um, those menstrual cups, um, until we're happy that the products have passed. Um, and if the discharge becomes smelly or malodorous, um, or they do get the temperature, um, then we need to treat with antibiotics. Um, again, that, that complication is quite uncommon, um, but it does happen. Um, and in that case, we, we need to the patient to have access to prompt medical care so that we can manage those complications. Right. So we've given the MS two-step medication, having counselled the patients about their options, what to expect with mm -hmm. the process, and have obtained written consent. Uh, the patients yeah. have had the progesterone blocker 36 to 48 hours before having the prostaglandin and then mm -hmm. we'll start to pass the products of conception hopefully and they'll be getting some bleeding. We've talked about the risks and the complications. How do we then follow up those patients after they've had their medical termination? That's really important that we follow them up um, to make sure we find out nice and early whether there's been a complication. Um, so my personal practice is to give people a phone call um, a few days after that bleeding day just to make sure that they did bleed, that they did pass product um, and that everything went according to plan. You know, with telehealth um, over COVID, it has made things a lot more convenient for the patient that they don't have to keep coming in for these appointments. So, yeah, people find that pretty convenient. Um, the other thing that we need to do is do a follow-up at beta-HCG, um, usually about seven days after 
the misoprostol is when I arrange it and making sure that the beta-HCG has dropped by 80% at least. If there's an ongoing increase in beta-HCG or if it hasn't dropped significantly, um, that makes me think that you know, things haven't really gone according to plan um, and that we need to investigate further to determine, you know, is there an ongoing pregnancy or is there significant retained products that, that could keep that better HCG up high? Right. So I imagine that history then from those patients about whether or not they've had significant bleeding in the first instance is super important too. Now, I understand there's a 1300 number that we can register our patients two provided by the Murray Stopes organisation to help provide that after hours care for our patients after they've commenced their MS2 step. Can you talk us through that please? Yeah so so the um, manufacturer of the medication provides a 24-7 support line um, and that's staffed by a nurse um, so it's really helpful for the patient to be able to make a phone call and get some immediate advice by someone who's got that expertise in the area, um, particularly when our clinics may not be open. Um, I think that would probably save a few people a trip up to the emergency department for sure because they get that immediate feedback as to whether the bleeding they're experiencing is okay or is it too much um, or what to do next. Um, so that... We can put a link to that phone number. I don't know it off the top of my head, to be honest. Um, but, I'm, you know, often providing that in the written information for the patient so they've got something to refer to. Yeah, having that reassurance is incredibly important when you're embarking on this kind of medication, for sure. Mm-hmm. Now, um, you mentioned contraception earlier, Jasmine. You mentioned LARCs in particular, <laughs> those long-acting reversible contraceptives. And starting that conversation about contraception early in the process for these women, what do you talk about with your patients in terms of contraception? Well, look, I find um, that most people are quite receptive to contraception in these consults um, because they've seen, you know, the immediate consequences of either their contraception not working or or that they haven't been on anything. Um, So, you know, I like to encourage them to use something that's reliable. So, you know, if they have been taking the contraceptive pill and they've been missing a few doses um, and that's why they've had a failure of the contraception, well, then, you know, we need to find something that that works a bit better for them and doesn't rely on them, you know, being able to take it every day. Um, So, you know, something like the hormonal implant, the Implanon or the IUD, the Marina or the Kylena, are all really appropriate choices. It does have to be a bit of a delay in inserting the IUD after having the medical termination, just to make sure all the products have passed and the uterus is empty. Um, so there is that little window there where the, where the person could get pregnant in that time. Um, so I, I do always offer that we could bridge that gap with the Depot Provera. Um, which can be given on on the day of the termination. Um, The Implanon can also be inserted on the day of the termination and the combined contraceptive pill can be started on the day after the misoprostol. So 
Jasmine, yeah, once the products of conception have passed, it'll only be about eight days before fertility res returns for that woman. <laughs> so starting that contraception early and that bridging contraception, as you mentioned, before they continue with a long-acting reversible contraceptive of their choice would be ideal. Absolutely. And look, I mean, at, at the end of the day, we have to remember that it's people's choice whether they want to be on contraception or not. Um, so it's all about facilitating them, providing them with the facts and, and encouraging them to make a choice that, that works well. But, you know, all of our contraceptives do come with the risk of side effects. So, you know, I can appreciate that um, some people want to avoid the hormonal options. In that case, um, the copper IUD is certainly um, a good choice um, and, and is highly effective. Or if they if they are choosing to use barrier contraception like condoms, um, then you know they just need to remember that condoms only work when so if they break or if they forget, you know, then they just need to think about emergency contraception like the morning after pill. Okay. So you've given us a lot to think about, Jasmine. <laughs> I understand MS2 step prescribing you need a particular qualification for can you talk us through how we might become a prescriber yeah absolutely so it's quite straightforward to become a prescriber but you do have to do initial additional training um, and you can access that via the ms2 step website the training's all online um, and once you receive your certificate then you can start the process of of becoming a prescriber i also found that there was a really useful um, module via the RACGP, which talked through non-directed pregnancy counselling. Um, and if you go through that training process, then you do have access to the additional item number for, for that non-directed pregnancy counselling. Um, and another excellent resource is the therapeutic guidelines. They've got really comprehensive advice on there now. Um, so that's a great way, place to or if you do become a prescriber and need to troubleshoot any complications. That's fantastic information. And of course, for those clinicians who are not keen on becoming a prescriber themselves or might even be conscientious objectors, of course, that's their choice, but it's important that they don't create barriers for women's access to those services with another clinician in their practice or at a neighbouring practice. How do we go about managing that difficulty with some of our peers? Yeah, so, I mean, look, the, the law recognises that a doctor can have personal values or beliefs that mean they can't provide care for someone for a termination of pregnancy. Um, so, yeah, in that case, they can invoke conscientious objection. Um, but there is that legal obligation that they do need to advise the patient and refer to someone that can provide that care in a timely fashion. And, you know, we've talked about time being of the essence with with the gestation, being able to provide the medical termination up to nine weeks, any delay in referral would be very inappropriate. You know, from an ethical point of view, the, the AMA code of conduct really outlines that doctors should continue to treat their patients with dignity and respect and really refrain from expressing their own beliefs in a way that causes a patient any distress. So I think, you know, we've all got to be really aware of our own personal values and judgments and and sometimes it's a matter of keeping them to ourselves um, and providing the care that the patient needs. 
Oh, look, Dr. Jasmine Davis, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a really important conversation to have around medical termination of pregnancy. You've given us all a lot to think about. And uh, we look forward to talking to you another time about another hot topic. Thanks so much. Thanks for that, Alyssa. Talk to you next time. For more information about The Roundup or to share your feedback and ideas for future episodes, visit nqrth.edu.au forward slash roundup hyphen podcast or contact us at nqrth.mackay at jcu.edu.au. We also want to advise that the views and opinions presented in this podcast are those of the speaker only and do not represent the views and opinions of James Cook University, Northern Queensland Regional Training Hubs, or Queensland Health. The content supplied in this podcast is not intended as medical advice and is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Northern Queensland Regional Training Hubs is an initiative of the Australian Government's Integrated Rural Training Pipeline and is facilitated by James Cook University in partnership with public and private hospitals, Queensland Aboriginal and Islander Health Council, Health Services, Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisations and General Practice Clinics.